wonderful to be with you this morning. I will say, uh, if you're surprised to see me in the pulpit this morning, uh, no one is more surprised than myself. But <laughs> That being said, I was mentioning to Robert this morning that, uh, you know, it comes to mind what, Tim, what Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, be instant in season and out of season. And certainly I feel out of season this morning, but I would cover your prayers. And uh, we will relay the word of God as best we are able. So the question I would begin with this morning is simply this. How does God speak to us? We know, of course, that God speaks to us through his word. The scriptures are what we may call vox dei, which is a Latin term meaning the voice of God the way in which God has spoken to us. But there is also an even more important question, which is, how do we know that God has spoken? More specifically, how do we know that what God has spoken is contained in his word, and that it alone contains what he has spoken to us? This really involves an understanding of the concept of revelation, or the way God has revealed himself to us. Biblically, there are two recognized forms of revelation, what we might call general or natural revelation and special revelation. The testimony of the scripture is that there is a natural revelation that renders all men everywhere without excuse concerning the knowledge of the creator and that even the most ardent atheist knows this. Though he may rebel against the knowledge that there is indeed a God who has made the world and all that is contained therein, this notion is well attested by the Apostle Paul when Paul writes in Romans 1, 18-20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The thesis of the apostle in this matter is that there are no excuses men may offer for their rebellion against him, nor can they plead ignorance of the fact that he is there. For the creation itself manifests the nature and the character of the God who made it. The order and the symmetry, the invariable logic and order of the laws that govern this universe, and the unrivaled beauty of his creation, and all that he has made, which rivals anything that Van Gogh or Michelangelo ever thought in their minds to create, testify in no uncertain terms that the universe and all it contains is no accident but the purposeful work of a creator. On top of the fact that the creation around us testifies to him, the existence of God also invariably is testified to his creatures in the fact that his law is written upon their hearts, as Paul contends in Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. 
So not only then does man externally have the testimony of the creation itself, which testifies that there is a creator, but also has his law in his heart and in his conscience, showing that the creator is there. And this may not be contested as far as his existence is concerned. There is truly no way for a person, the Bible tells us, not to know that there is a God. Thus it is clear on what grounds the psalmist may say of the man who does not believe in God, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. It is a foolish man who says there is no creator, because there is no person who does not possess the knowledge of him. But such knowledge may not save him and is only sufficient to condemn him. Such general revelation only tells us that there is a creator. It does not tell us who that creator is or how we may know him. Thus, it becomes necessary that we have a special revelation wherein the creator enters his creation in some fashion to communicate to his creations who he is his nature and his character and his attributes, and to give them the means by which they may come to know him. That has been given to us in the form of the word of God. As scripture tells us in testimony of itself in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Every word of scripture is inspired, or as it is more literally rendered in 2 Timothy 3.16, it is God-breathed. It's that which is breathed out from the very mouth of God. The scripture proceeds from him and is how he conveys to us himself and is how we know who he is and what his will is for us. Now, I believe a pertinent example of this we see is in the example of the life of Paul and his ministry to the Greeks. And the verses I would like us to consider this morning are in the book of Acts, chapter 17. That's where we will be this morning for our scripture reading. And I will bring a message from Acts 17 that is probably not the more typical message that that this passage is used for. But if the Lord wills, he'll equip me to preach it effectively. If you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word of God out of reverence. And so St. Luke records for us in the book of Acts, verse 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing. 
Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given insurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this hour. We thank you for the fact that your word has gone forth, Lord. We know that it is effectual, fervent, sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. May it divide to the very thoughts and the attentions of the heart of all present this morning, Lord. We would just ask at this time that you would give us a mind for the study of your word, a mind for worship, a mind for the consideration of the internal things, Lord, recognizing that this moment in time in which we live, this moment on this earth, is but a fleeting moment. It is a vapor that is passing away, Lord. And there is an eternity ahead. There is internal things, Lord. May we consider those eternal things today. May we consider the fact that you are Lord. It's not that you will be Lord, or you may be Lord, but you are Lord. And as such, all your creatures are commanded to worship you, Lord. May you have the worship for which you deserve. May you receive the praise for your name, which is rightfully yours. And forgive us for our trespasses against you, Lord even as we forgive the trespasses of others. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and what he's given on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' precious and only we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in some sense, we see really an answer to the question of how do we know that God speaks to us, or how do we know that the Bible is his word? In some sense, the answer really seems quite circular. The simple answer is that we will believe that the scriptures are the word of God because they testify that they are. If we consider it in philosophical terms, we might characterize our deductions about the nature of Scripture as a priori deductions, which is really a $20 word to express the fact that the truths of the Scripture are self-evident. They need no further explanation. The Bible is God's word on fact that it is God's word. We can deduct from the reasonable order of the creation itself that there must be one who created it, 
who has made these things. But we know that mere deduction is insufficient to offer any real knowledge about God. Rather, our reasoning of the nature of the scriptures rests in the promise and the fulfillment in that scripture that Christ would die and be raised from the dead. This is such a self-evident truth that men may be held account for it. As we see in Paul's words on, on Mars Hill, which we just read, Acts 17, 30-31, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to us all by raising him from the dead. When Paul is taken to Mars Hill, the philosophers of Athens wished to hear him not so they could be convinced of the fact of his doctrine, rather so they could simply hear his arguments and either accept or refute what Paul's arguments were. We see in Luke's account of events that Paul was stirred up by the idolatry of the Athenians. The Athenians were a keen example of the fact that all men, in some sense, know that there is a creator. They were zealous to constantly appeal to higher divine powers and were so concerned that they would miss one. Remember, the Athenians were polytheists. They believed in many gods, numerous gods, almost countless gods, and any culture or any people that they encountered, oftentimes they would group that those deities, those gods, into their own deities, so that oftentimes you end up with things like, like um, Zeus being combined with the sun god Ra, or something of that nature. You get these homogenous mixings of gods and deities that the Athenians and the, the Greeks in general so often were practicing. It was a very different mindset than one many of us can imagine or understand. But in other ways, it's something we can all too clearly understand, because even though polytheism is not in fashion these days, the reality is most people do have many gods and worship many gods and bow themselves down to many idols. They're not made of stone. They're not made of wood. They're not made of gold, but, well, maybe gold, but either way, they do bow themselves down to idols and they worship them, whether that be the god of money or the god of power I would say a great deal of the problems and the strife we're seeing in this day and age right now is a result of love, the love of money and power and the worship of those things. Uh, the man in Russia who is at this moment trying to take over Ukraine, the reason he is doing this is because of the fact that he worships a god. He claims it is the god of the Bible, but the reality is it is a god which is money and it is a god which is power. And that is so much of what motivates those that lead and rule in this nation and in this land. And it's so much what motivates the rulers of this world. And as such, in many ways, we ought to call them to repent. And we should be calling the rulers of this world to repent and to exercise godly authority, which is that that they rightfully should. But the Athenians, in short, were polytheists. And they were constantly zealous because of that fact that they would erect a monument with the inscription to the unknown God. Because of this fact, Paul reasoned with them in the synagogue and in the marketplace night and day, and the scripture records in Acts 17, 18 through 20, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, 
and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. So the Athenians do take an interest in the preaching of Paul. But this is purely an intellectual interest on the part of these philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. This is not something which is born out of conviction, but merely curiosity. Athens was at that time the intellectual capital of the world. The greatest universities and the greatest schools were all in Athens. The most influential philosophical camps of that day were based in Athens. This was the city of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Because of this fact, the Athenians were always chasing the next new thing, the latest intellectual fad. For as Luke points out in his commentary in Acts 17.21, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear some new thing. Paul, however, does not bow down. He does not kowtow to the intellectual interests of the Athenians. He's not here to reason over the intellectual feasibility of his proposal. He does not come with them with some sort of quandary or notion which he is bringing for their consideration to either accept or reject. That is not the message that Paul comes to this morning. Rather, he comes to proclaim a simple and a forceful message. He is to proclaim with uncompromising certainty the veracity and the reality of the God he serves. And so Paul begins in Acts 17, 22 through 23, and he says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Thus Paul lays a salvo across the bow of the pagans before him and launches into one of the most powerful and forceful proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in the Holy Scripture. Paul begins with the evident facts about creation. We see this recorded in verses 24 to 26 when he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So Paul begins here in his argumentation with the general revelation, we might say. He begins with the natural fact. He is not speaking to an audience that is steeped in the Holy Scripture. He is not speaking to an audience that has a great deal of familiarity with the Old Testament. Rather, he is speaking to pagans. So he begins where the pagan begins. He begins with that which is evident before their very face, which is the creation itself. And so he says that God, who made the world and all things, and is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see, Paul was walking through the streets of Athens, and he was looking about, and he was seeing all of these things which the Athenians had made, all of these mighty structures that had been erected, the various temples to these deities that they had erected throughout their city. And the city was full of them. It was full of incredible pieces of architecture, things that are incredible to look at. I mean, if we think of the Acropolis, I've never been there, but if you've seen photographs of it, or if you've even seen it in person, you recognize the incredible architecture of it, the incredible beauty of it. And Paul would have seen this in its heyday. He would have seen these things not as ruins, but as reality, as something that was maintained and was, was in its full splendor and glory. He would have seen these incredible things, but Paul's reaction is not what we might call a natural reaction. He is not awestruck with the beauty or the wonder of these things. Rather, he is grieved by the reality that these things have been made into idols. These things have been made into blasphemy against the one who made these things, who made the stone, who made the gold, who made the silver, who made everything, and all the creatures who lifted their hands to make these things. He gives them their very breath, even as they lift their hands in worship to things which are created. That is the thing that grieved Paul's heart. And as such, he rebukes them and says, he is not worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Seeing he gives life and breath and all things. God gives life. The very breath that you breathe is that which God has given to you. Every breath you receive is a precious gift which the Lord has given to you. And he gives that even to those who hate him and blaspheme him. The blasphemer draws that breath at the permission of God even as he blasphemes him. That is the nature and the reality of the God we serve. And as such, Paul indicates very clearly that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their times appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And so he begins with relaying all of these things. And he even quotes things that the, uh, the Athenians would have been familiar with and would have understood. To drive all these points home, Paul even quotes two Greek poets, Aratus and Cleanthes. We see that in Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And it's an incredible thing. It's something that I often think about, the fact that most of what we read in this verse here, which is inspired scripture, is things that were written by Greek poets, pagans, millennia ago. And that really speaks to the reality of the fact that all men know there is a God. All men know there is a creator. Do they understand that creator? No. Paul saw very clearly. They worship in ignorance. They built these incredible things, these incredible structures, these idols, to try to worship something they didn't know existed. They didn't know what it was. And they were so zealous in their pursuit of this that they would even lift up an altar and write on it to the unknown God. We don't know who this one is, but we just, we're going to try to worship him to cover our bases, lest we leave him out and be angry. That's the nature of humankind. We worship that which we know not of. Generally speaking, in terms of our natural understanding of the world, 
all men know there is a God. I mean, that is evident by the fact that you can go to the darkest, most isolated corners of the world. You will find men seeking to worship. They worship in ignorance. They worship that they know, know not of. But nevertheless, they know. They recognize. They look out into the creation and they see the reality of the fact that he has made all things. And more than that, their hearts within them very testify that fact. The conscience within them screams out and cries out, there is a God. There is one who has made them. And there is one they have been called to worship. They don't know who he is. They worship in ignorance. Nevertheless, they are compelled to, they are forced to, by their very nature, to worship. Because we as a being are beings made for worship. All men are made for worship. No man can escape that fact. No person can escape the fact that we are creatures made for worship. And all of us will worship. Everyone will worship. And you might ask, well, will the agnostic worship? Will the atheist worship? Will the God-hater worship? Yes, they will worship. All men will worship. What they worship, that depends. They may worship themselves. They may worship the things of this world. They may worship false gods. They may worship false deities. They may worship money or power. They may worship fame. They may worship whatever you could name. But all men will indeed worship. And as such, the reality of the matter is, it's not so matter will men worship, it is what men will worship. And Paul was eminently concerned with the audience he stood before, what they would worship. And so he sought to plead with them to worship in spirit and in truth. Because as Paul relays to us in Acts 17.31, because he hath appointed a day, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. This assertion of Paul, that Christ was raised from the dead, is met with scoffing and mockery. To understand this, we have to understand the Greek mind. For the Greek there was this consistent belief in what we might call dualism. The idea of dualism is that the spirit is inherently good and the body or matter is inherently evil. As such, for them, the idea that God would raise the dead is just completely ridiculous because the body is evil. It is inherently evil. The idea of the good, as denoted by such Greek philosophers as Socrates, was to be released from the body, to escape the body, to escape matter, to transcend to some higher level, to achieve something that is outside of the material world. That was good, and this is evil. So the idea that God would raise men from the dead, the, guy, the, the idea that God would resurrect that which was in evil, would remake the body so that it was evil no longer, was something they could not and would not accept. Now, this Greek view would cause problems a century later, after Paul, in Christian circles, when certain heretics, often called the Gnostics, began to insert this viewpoint into their own so-called teachings and scriptures, and began to make assertions denying the fact that Jesus had a physical body and denying the reality of the resurrection because for them, they had bowed down to the altar of Greek thought 
and it came to their conclusion that they were going to worship as the Greeks worshiped. They were going to imbibe this idea of dualism. They were going to imbibe this idea that only the spirit is good and only the and that only that all matter is evil. So how central are these doctrines and how vital are they? Well, I think the answer is self-evident. The reality is they are the defining line between what separates salvation from damnation. The fact of both the bodily presence of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is so evident that all men everywhere can be assured of it and are commanded to repent. The word of God stands in Christ. It is embodied in Christ himself. As John tells in John 1.1, he is the living embodiment, the personification of the word of God. He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was before the world was, and was in the presence of the Father. And that word was certainly Christ. We know that the word of the Lord abides forever, preceded the world, and all that is formed within it. The psalmist declares in Psalms 119, 89 through 90, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. The word of the Lord is settled forever in heaven. It endures for all eternity. It withstands all the generations of the earth. Before they were formed, it was there. Millennia after they have turned to dust, it will remain as sure as the Lord established the earth and it abides, his word is settled and abides forever. By prophets, he dispensed that word to us, securing the revelation by miracles and wonders. In the fullness of time, the word was fully exegeted to us in its consummate form when John tells us in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ, in the fullest manner possible, gave us the word, the revelation of the Father who dwells in heaven. But not only do we rest in the revelation of the word of God upon the Son, but upon the fullness of the Godhead itself. The revelation that we have is a Trinitarian revelation, and as such is sustained and affirmed by the Trinity. The Father decrees the revelation, the Son secures the revelation, and the Holy Spirit bears the revelation upon our hearts. As we have stated, the Father had this revelation in his presence from before the foundation of the world, possessed it with him in the form of his Son, who is the consummation and the full exposition of himself. As sure as God laid the foundations of the world, he wrote the words of his scripture in heaven. By his word, he made all things. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Lord, by the words of his mouth, created the world. By the words of his mouth, in the revelation of John, the Lord slays his enemies. God's word is powerful, and it stands forever. The Son testifies of him by entering the world and declaring upon the cross the God that made the world and drawing all men to himself 
in that endeavor. As Jesus himself says in John 3, 13 through 14, no one has ascended up to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Though we may not ascend to the father in heaven, the son who came down from the father declared him to his creation. And by his death on the cross, secured the revelation, the good news of his coming to all those who would look upon him and believe in him. But also the spirit, which dwells in those that believe, brings to their remembrance his word and convinces them that this is truly life and the word from the father in heaven. As Jesus said in John fourteen twenty six, but the helper who is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all things I have said to you. In the course of redemptive history, God spoke to his people, giving them over to the course of times, a progressive and growing revelation, one that the scripture tells us reached their final and perfect fulfillment in the Son. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 cries out to us, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word, very light of very light, and very God of very God, deigned to humble himself, emptying himself of his vast majesty in order that he might, in the process of his death, win life to those called according to his name. As Paul affirms to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And it was this message, the message of the embodied word, the one who is both fully God and also fully man, that Paul proclaimed to the Athenians, one who humbled himself, emptied himself of all that was rightly his, and taking upon himself the shameful death of the cross. As is written in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And not only did that one hang upon a tree, taking upon himself the just wrath of his elect and dying a propitiatory death. But that one was also raised bodily from the dead. And thus Paul can say boldly to the Athenians, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given full assurance unto all men and that he has raised him from the dead. The question that is often asked is, how does God speak to us? The answer to that question is simply the word. And then comes the next question. You know, I, I get this question a lot. 
How do I know that the Bible is reliable and that it is true? I could spend a lot of time speaking here about the reliability of the text. I could tell you about the rich abundance of textual evidence we have for it. I could tell you that we have over 2,500 early manuscripts of the New Testament, the earliest we know of likely being written only decades from when John wrote the book of Revelation in the 90s AD. I could tell you about the fact that if we didn't have these manuscripts, we could recreate the entire New Testament, save eight verses from the writings of the early church fathers. I could talk about the accuracy of the text and all the things the Bible talks about which the archaeological evidence has faithfully borne out, or the things which the Bible has predicted which have inevitably come true, you hold a miracle within your hands. Let me assure you of that, which is not imitated by any other thing on this earth. And yet it is not these things which make it miraculous, which make it true. Rather, it is true because of the veracity of the one for which it testifies, Christ and him crucified. It is true today because the tomb is empty. And the notion of an empty tomb was for those Athenian philosophers something to laugh and scoff at. But I tell you, the greatest hope that has ever existed is that. Really, it is the only hope that we have. We live in a fallen world. The world waxes worse as the days go on. There are many people afraid today. There are many people concerned about Ukraine. There are people concerned about Taiwan. There are people who hear of wars and rumors of wars, and they lose hope because their hope ends at the grave. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, count us as all men, both miserable. Yet we do have a hope today because we are strangers in a country that is not our own, looking to a home we have not seen. We do indeed live in a fallen world. It's not hard to see that. You can look at the hospitals, the morgues, the cemeteries. You can simply look around you and see it. I know I see it even in the natural revelation. You go out into the woods and you can encounter the beauty of the creation that God has made. And it's truly a masterpiece to behold this world which God has made. And yet you can also see it as marred. There is death, there is decay, there is predation. There are so many things which all cry out in unison, fallen. This is a fallen world. Death is all around us. This life is a vapor, and is vapor that is not short of suffering, sorrow, pain, and final termination in death. That is the reality of life. All men know this, even from a young age. This is what it means to live. It means to suffer. And yes, you must recognize that we should not, indeed, cannot be a people that have no hope. Rather, we are the possessors of the only hope, the only hope of redemption that anyone can grasp. As Paul makes us aware, our purpose is the proclamation of this message. If we truly are the possessors of not only a hope, but rather the hope, that is something that must be shared. As Paul said, he has set the bounds and habitations of every man in order that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Even now, for those that are outside of the bounds of hope today, their creator is not far from them. Indeed, he is but a single breath away from the coming of their redemption. If only their heart would be turned. 
but without a messenger, how shall they hear? We look at the things that are going on in this world, particularly now the things going on in Ukraine, and we are tempted to lose heart in the face of that. Yet for our brethren there, they are preparing to do what they must proclaim to proclaim the gospel even in the midst of the darkness. I'd ask you to consider the words of Yaroslav Push, the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary, something I read this week and I hope it encourages you. What he said was the church will go underground, speaking of the Ukrainian church. We had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. We will rearrange, reorganize, and do what we always do, preach the gospel. These are people who endured suffering for the cross under the Soviets, and they are prepared to do so under the shadow of Moscow once again. They are a people prepared to do what they must for the sake of the proclamation of this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there is us, and we can stand to hear the words of the author of Hebrews when he says, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. If there is one thing that we can learn best from the church fathers, it is that they understood what it means to suffer. They understood what James said when he wrote in James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Suffering is needful in the Christian sojourn in this life. It is that which fixes our eyes heavenward. We can look to the example of Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who in the second century was led away captive to Rome, where he would be ultimately martyred, torn apart by lions in the Colosseum. The historian Eusebius records for us a fragment of a letter which he wrote on that final journey. And Ignatius writes, from, Sirius, from Syria to Rome, I am fighting with wild animals on land and sea, night and day, chained to ten leopards, a troop of soldiers, whom kindness make even worse. Their shameful deeds increase my discipleship, but this does not justify me. May I benefit from those wild beasts that are ready for me, and I pray that they are prompt. I will coax them to devour me quickly not as with some whom they have been afraid to touch. If they are, un are unwilling, I will force them to do it. Pardon me, but I know what is best for me now. Now I am starting to be a disciple. May I envy nothing seen or unseen in gaining Jesus Christ. Let fire and cross, struggles with beasts, tearing bones apart, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, and tortures of the devil come upon me if only... I may attain to Jesus Christ. For Ignatius, he did not count the things of this world too great a thing to lose, nor all the sufferings of this life that they could throw upon him too great a cross to bear, if only he might have Christ. That is a need for Christ which we should hunger for. We too need more of Christ. He is our all in all. Suffering, as Ignatius says, is that which in truth increases our discipleship. Indeed, we have a precious hope, which Hebrews tells us was only a dim shadow 
to those that came before. All those saints of the Old Testament suffered and endured mighty suffering and did not have the promise that we possess. I think Bob read it this morning. I'll read it again. Hebrews 11, 32 through 39. And what shall I say? For the time would fail to spare me, for it failed to fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of all the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women's rece- women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that we might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. The one who spoke before by prophets to his people has spoken to his people in a final crowning culmination in his son. That is the line that separates us from all that came before. Christ came into the world. And all that come after that is influenced and established by that monumental fact. Christ came into this world. This is all we know about Revelation. He has come. All that matters is simply this. But what separates Christ from all that came before? There were prophets and revelators that came before. What separates him then lies in the character and nature of the one who has been sent there were indeed many prophets God sent before, but they were not his son. If we consider the parable which God gave to us by way of Matthew, Matthew 21, 33 43. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but I would encourage you to go and read it. He tell, Jesus tells us a parable of the vineyard owner who sent his servants to collect from the from the vine dressers and they killed one servant and they stoned another and they continually just showed complete and utter disregard for the owner of the vineyard until the point to where he says, I will send my son. They will regard him. And when the son comes, what happens? We all know the story. They say, this is the heir. Let us kill him and we'll have the vineyard for ourselves. And they kill him and they, they take him and throw him outside of the vineyard and they stone him. The point of that is this. Those that came before were servants. But in the end, God sent his son, appointed heir of all things. The ones that came before were not, as the scripture tells us, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Thus, Christ is the cornerstone, which, though rejected by the people of Israel, has by the power of the Lord been made the cornerstone of a new kingdom a kingdom that has no end. Such words could never be applied to a mere human, for these are words that broach divinity. 
None may have the glory of the Father unless that one is of his own nature divinity. None may be the express image of the Father except that he be of the same quality as the Father, the uncreated, self-existent maker of the universe. The only one who could be this cornerstone is the one who came down from heaven, Jesus Christ. Thus the, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. He became that upon which all else was built. We know that there is only one God. For we have here one who is sent by God and who also possesses those things that only God may possess. For God declares in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God beside me. The Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, declares he alone, Lord, and there is no God in heaven and earth besides him. Such is reiterated in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Truly, we accept there is one God, and the scripture may not be broken in this matter. When the Lord declares that he is one, and there are no other gods out there, we must trust and accept that it is so because he has revealed it and established it in the power of his word. All this is of immense importance when it comes to Revelation. While the person of the Father remained in heaven, the person of the Son entered creation. God entered creation in the form of the Son. While God throughout the ages breathed out words of revelation to show his will to his people, no revelation before could compare to the revelation that came from the Son. And when the Son enters creation, he is called the Word, for he declares the revelation of God in a way that has not been seen before, nor indeed could ever occur again until he returns into that same creation. As John tells us, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No one, not even Moses, the greatest of those prophets before, could behold God. When Moses requested the Lord, show me your glory, he was forbidden. For the Lord was explicit to him, no man may see my face and live. But the only begotten Son, who was with the Father before the world was, declared him to the world, made him known in a way that no prophet before could, by nature of the fact that they are creatures and they could not see God. But the Son was not only with God in the beginning, but was of his being and nature God, and therefore took on flesh to declare God to his creation to, we might say, exegete to his creation in a way that had never been before, to reveal God in a way that had never been seen before or could ever in any way be imitated. He dwelled in eternity with God, and so by virtue of his nature could enter that creation and declare him fully. Whereas before this revelation was only known in part and understood in part, now that revelation is fully known and has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, upon whom is fully vested the glory of the omnipotent Lord. Even when we consider the revelation that came before, all that was but types and shadows which pointed inevitably to Christ. The entire sacrificial system, Hebrews tells us, was inevitably pointing to the Lord Christ. For his sacrifice was, per was perfect, whereas all the sacrifices that came before were but a reminder that no sacrifice 
was ever sufficient to fully atone for and take away sin, but only remained as a reminder of the sufficiency of those sacrifices. That's what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the, make the comers thereunto perfect. For them, for then would they not have ceased to offer, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By, by the which will we are sacrificed, are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The sins of the people could never be remitted by the offerings which were given in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Those sacrifices that happened in the tabernacle and later in the temple, they could not put away sin, but only left a gnawing hunger for deliverance, for a removal of sin from the people. By purging out sins in himself, he has given us liberty from the sacrificial system, from the countless generations of high priests that went into the Holy of Holies for the purpose of making an offering for the people, who stood in the holy place and were commanded to place blood on the altar, as he had been done so many countless times before. That is the system that the prophets foresaw an end to, a final resolution. And this day, my brethren, we are the possessors of that final resolution. We are the possessors of that which Christ has given to us. We are the possessors of the fullness of which those that came before, though they suffered, though they died, though they were martyred for it, did not have, did not have a full possession of. We are a possessor of incredible blessings. So in summation of all this, when it comes to the nature of the revelation of God, we know that God has spoken to us and that he has spoken to us by his word, by the nature of the one he sent. The son who was in the bosom of the father and came down from heaven and by his death and resurrection testified of him gives us the full assurance that he is there and that he has given us commands that we are to follow. The Lord is imminent and that he is not far from any one of us, but is ever nearby. And yet the transcendent nature of God, wherein the gulf between the creature and the creator was so unscalable that it was necessary that there be in place a bridge to scale that gulf so that man might have hope of knowing and truly being known of this God. That bridge is Christ who is by 
his being and nature deity, and yet took on flesh and dwelt among us. He gave us a sure testimony of the God that we had not known, and he was the living embodiment of the word of God. And he has left for us a spirit who lives and dwells within us and impresses upon our hearts the truths which are contained in the words that were written down. The scriptures are the voice of God. And we can trust that when we go to them, we can truly hear him speak to us because he has secured that certainty in the blood of his precious son. Now, in the light of that, what are we to do with that? I hope that the application is clear. The answer is that we are to pursue Christ. We are to run after him with all our might. We are to run for him, proclaiming him to those we meet as we rush after him. We are to run as Peter when he ran to meet the risen Christ. We are to follow the words of Hebrews, which says in Hebrews 12, 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is any sin too precious to not lay down for his sake? Is any treasure in this world worth more than to lay it down at his feet? Is there any sling or arrow of outrageous fortune that is not worth enduring for the sake of Christ? Is suffering too great a price to bear for him? Ignatius tells us no. Our brethren in foreign countries tell us no. The persecuted church throughout the ages, the cloud of witnesses that has come before us, bear witness to the fact that no, it is not too great a weight to bear for the sake of Christ. All things can be endured and should be endured for the sake of him. For the fact is, we have not begun to be disciples until we have suffered for his name's sake. For we have been given a surety, a down payment of the hope that is before us, by the fact that God has raised him from the dead. And so we can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Truly must recognize the true weight of the hope that is within us. We have a hope that transcends this world, transcends the grave to which we all must ultimately go. All enemies will be put under Christ's feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And we can look to that day and know that it is true as John wrote to us in Revelation 21:40, one of the most blessed promises of Scripture, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Life is often pain, and there is no other way to characterize it. Man's days are few, and they are full of trouble. Psalm 103, 15-16 records this, For man his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. We are all, even though we are not aware of it, we're on the way out of here. We're passing through. 
one minute, one moment of your life, you're young, then you're old. And then next thing you know, you're gone. Life is a vapor. Life is a cloud. Life is something that passes so rapidly and is so quickly gone. And man's days are short and they are full of trouble. This world is not something to cling to because this world is passing away. The things of this world cannot compare to that which lies beyond. And I would hope if there's one thing I can impress upon you, it is the fact that we should set our minds on eternal things. The mind of the wise man is one which considers all things, everything that happens in this light, in the light of eternity, of the reality that there is something greater beyond this. This life is but a pinprick in the canvas that is eternity. It is but a grain of sand in the ocean that is eternity to come. And so given that fact, given that reality, do not be blinded by the things of this world. Do not be blinded by the things that we see around us. Because the reality, those things are fleeting. They are fickle, and they will soon be gone. This world is passing away. And one way or another, we are all passing away, whether that be by the grave or by the return of our Lord Jesus. It does not matter. Time is short. This life is fleeting. And as such, we only have one life, and it will soon be over. The only thing that will truly remain the only thing that will truly endure, the only thing that will, be, will not be burned up at the end is whether or not we have served Christ, whether, we not, whether or not we have loved Christ, and whether we or not we have given all for Christ. And if we are in him, then we can be assured of this fact, that we will endure in this life. We will endure suffering. We will endure pain. But these are things which Christ has died to bring to a final end. And if we are in him, then he will dry every tear from our eyes. I would like to simply conclude with simply reading the words of the Apostle Paul, because he said it better than I ever could. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Dear and Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to be here, Lord. We thank you for another day of life. We thank you for the precious gift we have in our life. Lord, we know it is such a fleeting thing. It is a vapor. It is something that is here today. It is gone tomorrow. It is something that is passing away. May we recognize the true transitory nature of life. And may we also truly learn to understand what it means to live life in the light of eternity. 
because what truly matters is eternal things. The fleeting things of this world will not stand at that day. Because we recognize that as Paul has said, you have appointed a day in which you will hold all men to account. And you have given a surety to us in the fact that you have raised your son Jesus from the dead. And we are thankful for that fact today because he is the reason we have life, Lord. He is the reason we have peace. He is the reason we have hope. He is the reason we can hold up our heads even as others cower in fear. Because the reality is he is with us even now. He is interceding on our behalf. We are thankful for him today and every day. And we are most of all grateful for the fact that we have been given the promise of a resurrection, Lord. And we know truly that it is, as the scriptures say, you will wipe every tear from our eyes. These things we ask in Jesus' precious and only we pray. Amen.